Sales of narcotics is one of those crimes for which lots of innocent people get wrongly accused and and tragically often wrongly convicted. The good news is that here at Las Vegas Defense Group, we have a great record of success over the years in defending clients who are charged with drug sales and ultimately helping them to get their charges reduced or dismissed.
A popular hip-hop podcaster arrested in connection with the deadly shooting at Irving Plaza last May faced a judge today. All right, as Lisa Everett shows us, federal prosecutors think they've got more than enough evidence to prove that he is the trigger man. There were some stunning claims in a case here at federal court that has disturbed many in New York's hip-hop community. A federal prosecutor says a popular podcast host known for shooting off his mouth was also shooting off a gun inside Irving Plaza last May, but his attorney denies the charges. 31-year-old Daryl Campbell, better known as multimedia personality Taxstone, went before a judge in federal court to be arraigned on two federal gun charges, including gun possession by a convicted felon. His attorney, Kenneth J. Montgomery, told me outside the courthouse, Campbell is not guilty. We deny all those charges. In court papers, federal prosecutors say DNA retrieved from the Caltech 9mm handgun on the grip, the magazine, and the trigger indicate it was Campbell's weapon and that he fired the shots that wounded rapper Troy Ave and two others and killed Troy Ave's bodyguard, Ronald Bangham McFadder, last May. Montgomery says there's more to all of this. Obviously, there's going to be discovery turned over and more facts and perhaps 3,500 materials in the federal system, so I'm going to reserve any comments about facts until the appropriate time. Prosecutors say Troy Ave picked up the gun after being shot and that it's the one we see him allegedly holding in the video released by the NYPD. In court, the As we all should pretty much know by now, Las Vegas is Disneyland for adults only. One of the benefits of you coming here is that a lot of things that are illegal in other states, cities, and countries, you could do here 100% legally. So in this video, I'm going to give you guys a few examples of things that are illegal in other states that you can do here 100% legally. So stay tuned. So you guys know I absolutely had to start with cannabis. So ever since the year 2000, cannabis has been legal in the state of Nevada. Not only is it legal, you could actually grow it in your backyard, in your own house, if you want to, if you're a Nevada resident. Now to some, that might sound too good to be true because there's a lot of restrictions with it. For example, you are definitely not allowed to smoke inside of resorts, casinos, or even in your hotel room. You are actually only legally allowed to smoke cannabis inside of your private residence. So your hotel room is not considered a private residence. The strip is not considered a private residence. So you could possibly get arrested. I recommend that you go to the parking lot of wherever casino you're in go to the parking lot and smoke in the stairs. However, do that at your own risk. You are responsible if you get in trouble or not. Another place that you could also go to is Nouveau Cannabis Marketplace. It is the only, I repeat, the only 
weed smoking lounge in the entire country. For those of you guys who want to know more about Nubu, make sure you watch my previous video right here. I have an entire segment about it. Another thing that is absolutely legal in Nevada is that you could buy alcohol at convenience stores, supermarkets, or pretty much anywhere. So this means you could literally go to CVS and go buy a bottle of Hennessy or buy a bottle of Ciroc. This is pretty much unheard of anywhere in the entire United States. I know in Europe, especially Russia, they allow you to do it. But in the United States, it's pretty much a no-no to buy alcohol at a convenience store or at a supermarket. But you can do that here 100% legally. Speaking of alcohol, there is absolutely no open container laws in Las Vegas. That means you can openly drink your alcohol anywhere you want. You don't have to, you don't have to buy a bottle and then go to your hotel room and drink it all, then go out. Now, here you can absolutely take your alcohol out in public, you won't get arrested for it. Keep in mind, the Las Vegas Strip have a no glass policy, so you cannot have any glass containers on the Las Vegas Strip. So if you want to bring your bottle, just get a jug, just get a jug of water or something, pour it out, and then fill your alcohol with it and bring it with you everywhere you go. I always recommend the tourists to go to Walmart or CVS, buy alcohol there and take it with you as you go around the strip and just put it in a water bottle or something. So you always have access to your alcohol while having to go back to your hotel room. That being said, we do have an open container rule when it comes to driving. You cannot drive with open container. You will definitely get fined or even arrested. Also, the same thing goes for taxis and Ubers. You are not allowed to bring your drinks in there. Unless the taxi guy or the Uber is pretty much cool and doesn't really care. Um, the only exception is with limos. Limo services usually have a permit that allows them to carry alcohol up there. Also, keep this in mind as well. You cannot have an open container 1,000 feet from where you bought it from. So if you bought it... So if you buy it from a CVS, you cannot drink it within a thousand feet from there. You have to transfer it to a different container. For those of you guys who like to gamble and to drink alcohol at any time, this place is for you. So in Las Vegas, you absolutely could gamble or drink at any time of the day it doesn't matter in other states and countries you are restricted but in las vegas there's no rule stopping you from drinking you can drink or gamble 24 7 nobody's going to stop you most places the majority of places sell alcohol 24 7 they never close some nightclubs don't even close until 10 a.m also some bars are 24 7. So literally, when you come here, you can go to Buffalo Wild Wings at 8 a.m. right after you got out the club and order some beers and have fun with the guys. A lot of people that work in the nightlife industry, as myself, we would go get drinks after work or go get a bite to eat after work. This is really doable in Las Vegas since everything is 24-7. Las Vegas is pretty much the only city 
that I know thing on the day it happened. Now I showed this photo first as it's only gonna make sense if you see this picture first so you can kinda compare these other photos to this first one. Now, YNW Melly does say that this was a drive-by that happened. And as you can tell from where everyone was sitting, the only ones affected by this was Juvie and Sack Chaser somehow. Borland and Melly ended up coming out of this perfectly fine. I honestly have no idea how that even happened, seeing as some of these pictures the car looks like it got absolutely trashed, but still, only Bortland and Melly came out of this without a scratch. And sharing these next pictures, you could basically see all of the angles that the car was hit from. As you could tell, it's very, very real. And if this situation was caught on camera, it probably would be something that would not be allowed to be shown to the public. As you can just tell how serious of an incident this truly was. Something this serious, it's surprising that the court case is not being, you know, shared as much to the public as we would think. The law enforcement is very unsure of what even happened in this situation. They're very unsure about this incident that went down with Melly and Bortland as they actually ended up taking around 40 minutes to get help for their friends apparently. Now apparently when this all went down, YNW Melly and YNW Bortland I guess sat there at the scene for around 30 to 40 minutes or something before taking his two best friends who obviously needed some medical attention as soon as possible to get help. Instead of calling for an ambulance or something along the lines of that, YNW Melly actually decided on driving to the hospital himself for whatever reason. And that is still another reason why they're leaving YNW Melly in lockup, as they actually really want to know why he didn't just call for emergency help, as that is what would make the absolute most sense but he, for some reason, didn't. And I can understand where YNW Melly is coming from. Honestly, there was a, probably a lot of adrenaline and fear going on in his head. And honestly, I probably would have froze up if I was in his situation as well. So you can't really, you know, go at him for that. And I really do hope we get to see YNW Melly let free very soon. As I do believe it has been time for him to be free or at least be put on house arrest for the time being. He has been sitting in lockup for I don't even know how long now, two to three years. And I think he deserves to at least be on house arrest. If you do think that as well, let me know down below in the comments, and also if you enjoyed the video, leave a like on it. Anyways guys, it has been District Trending, and I'm out. Peace.
And then those people all, almost all those people have personality defects. So you just have to deal with people. You know, he starts spinning some, uh, Lugo would start spinning some, some BS lie that everybody at the table sitting there thinking, come on, man, stop. That never happened. That's bullshit. That, come on, stop it. And we're all glancing at each other going, okay, okay. I mean, you don't really call the guy out on it because what does it matter? You don't really, you don't want to start building up enemies. So Lugo and I were, we hung out. Not all the time, but but quite a while. So now the guy that called me left me a voicemail. Colby, you can leave all this in here. Like if, like all this stuff, even me talking to you, I don't care if you leave it in or not. It, it's irrelevant. So Colby is my video editor and nobody expects professionalism from me. So to sit here and think, oh, I got to clip that and make sure that he looks good here or that it, it, it it's bad because he clipped. Uh, nobody cares. I don't care. Run with it. Uh, so back to the story. Regardless of Lugo's mental issues or, or, or his, the fact that he lied constantly, he did know what he was talking about a lot of times. And, and I liked him. He was a nice guy. I mean, it's, I understand it's like saying, you know, that, uh, you used to you know, eat lunch with uh, Joseph Stalin and yeah, sure. He wiped out, you know, eight to 10 million, you know, Russian civilians and, and millions and millions of, uh, of, you know, people died and were put in gulags and whatever, you know, you say, yeah, but you know what? He was a pretty nice guy, you know, in person. So what I'm saying is, yeah, he had some issues, but he was always cool to me. Uh, I would say that it was, we were pretty, we were cool right up till he left. You know, when he left, I remember he was like, bro, I'm going to reach out to you. Uh, I'm going to put money on your books. I'm going to hang out with you. And his wife actually put money on my books one time once or twice like he actually sent me like sent me money i mean lugo had some money like whatever he did his wife ended up i think keeping a lot of that money and he went to prison so lugo got caught i want to say it was 2014 or 15 got a couple of years for running the tax scam uh, through his own one of his own businesses, then he he what else happened? Uh, then he got out. I want to say he got out in two thousand and early two thousand eighteen. Uh, he got out in early two thousand eighteen because he got out like about a year or so before I did. Let's, let's say that like early, early 2018. Well, I never really heard from him again. I don't know if I got a letter or whatever. His wife had actually put money on my books, but that was while he was there in prison, like together. Like guys will put money on their books because they've got too much money. You can only, you have a spending limit for commissary. So if you can only spend three or four hundred dollars a month on commissary 
you'll have somebody put money on another inmate's books and he can buy you commissary. And Lugo was a big guy. So uh, his wife put money on my books and I got to keep some of the money and then I, I bought him some stuff and handed him some stuff and that happened a few times. And uh, he said he was going to keep in touch with me. I don't know if he ever sent me a letter. I don't think I ever really heard from him again. Regardless, I ended up getting out of prison and when I got out of the halfway house, so like a year and a half later, I get out of the halfway house. This, this is July 2000 and 2019. So he got out in early 2018. I got out in 2019. When I got out of the halfway house, I didn't hear from him or anything. Like I didn't expect, I really honestly never expected to hear from this guy again, ever. And I, you know, went about my, my, my life and everything's fine. Well, I would say late 2020. In late 2020, so a, over a year, year and a, a year and change later, in late, this is only what six months ago. I would say it was, I want it was it was like um, September, probably September. I I get a I get a, a message in Messenger from from. A guy named, uh, what, what is his, uh, I think it was like Ricky Williams or Rick Williams. So I get a Rick Williams and he's like, hey bro, what's up? I've been looking for you. Uh, here's my phone number. Give me a call. You know, hey crazy. I remember he called me. He's like, hey crazy man, give me a call. And I was like, Will Rick Williams, Ricky Williams. And I, 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 I didn't, I don't even know who that is. But I looked at the picture and then I went to his Facebook and I was like, whoa, it was Lugo. And so I ended up talking to him. He, he, I think he ended up calling me. In the horrific wake of the unspeakable massacre that took place at the Route 91 Harvest Festival here in Las Vegas, we know a lot of you have questions and confusions about firearm laws in the state of Nevada. I'm attorney Michael Becker from the Las Vegas Defense Group, and I'm here to provide you with some useful information on this topic. Many people wonder what kind of ammunition is legal in the state of Nevada. Nevada law permits the sale of nearly all kinds of ammunition including hollow points, tracers, frangible projectiles for target shooting, and 50 caliber ammunition. However, you are prohibited under both Nevada law and the federal law from purchasing or possessing armor-piercing bullets. Federal law defines armor-piercing ammunition as a projectile or projectile core which may be used in a handgun and which is constructed entirely from one or a combination of tungsten alloys, steel, iron, brass, bronze, beryllium copper, or depleted uranium. Or a full jacketed projectile larger than 22 caliber 
designed and intended for use in a handgun and whose jacket has a weight of more than 25% of the total weight of the projectile. The mere possession of armor-piercing bullets in Nevada is a gross misdemeanor which carries up to 364 days in jail and a fine of up to $2,000. And under federal law, if you possess armor-piercing bullets while carrying out a violent crime or a narcotics trafficking crime, you face 15 years to life in a federal penitentiary. If you have questions about firearm laws in Las Vegas or throughout the state of Nevada, call us at 702-DEFENSE or watch our instructional videos at 702defense.com. Sometimes you might just be breaking a house rule. Like if you're card counting, the casino may say, we don't allow card counters to play here. And they can kick you out of the casino for card counting. But you're not committing a crime against the state by card counting. However, if you're moving chips around on the table after the cards have been shown, if you're doing anything to gain an unlawful advantage against the house, uh, other than using your own mental savvy, then you could be accused of committing gaming fraud and prosecuted by a local district attorney's office. Now, when the victim is 13 years old and younger, well, the penalty is life with parole eligibility after 35 years. 35 years mandatory imprisonment, substantial bodily harm, life, no parole. And of course, in any of the situations I previously described, sex offender registration for life. This right now, I would say, there is no other crime than a crime of terrorism that causes this like witch hunt mentality, this hysteria to go after people. People are being accused and charged with devastating accusations solely on the word of an alleged victim. If you even think that someone is going to accuse you or has accused you of a crime of sexual assault, contact us immediately. There is no time to waste and the risks are way too great. I want to talk today about Padilla motions. Now, in 2010, in the case of Padilla versus Kentucky, the United States Supreme Court ruled that if a criminal defense attorney fails to explain to his client the immigration consequences of a criminal conviction or a plea, or fails to research the matter, then that could be considered ineffective assistance of counsel, and sometimes you can withdraw your plea and start the case over. And I'll give you an example. Suppose you're charged with possession for sale of methamphetamine. Now, there's no question that that is a conviction that will trigger immigration consequences. It will get a non-citizen deported from the United States 
and make him or her unable to become a citizen later on. Now, suppose the attorney says, look, it's fine. You go, I got you a great deal. Just plead guilty. Don't worry about deportation. Nothing's going to happen. So you go ahead, you sign the forms, you plead guilty. And sure enough, a year later, you get picked up by ICE and put in removal proceedings. And now you're facing deportation. Well, that may be a situation where we can run a Padilla motion. And if successful, allow you to withdraw your guilty plea, negate the conviction, start the case over, and then work to resolve it in a way that's not going to cause you to be deported. Now, keep in mind that Padilla only applies to cases or convictions that occurred after March 2010. But even for cases before that date, there may be other avenues of post-conviction relief. So if you're in a situation where you're about to be deported, you've been convicted of a crime that's triggered immigration consequences, we invite you to contact us. We may be able to make an effective Padilla motion or find some other avenue of post-conviction relief to ultimately keep you in the United States and resolve your case successfully. That plea agreement, what was the threat of, of uh, sentence length? Well, given at that time, as you may recall, uh, you had several very high-profile white-collar crime cases, including the Madoff case. So I was very concerned that if I were to go to trial and lose, which I thought was almost a certainty, that I would be sentenced to 20 to 25 years. That was a very significant likelihood, at least 20, and I wasn't willing to live with that. So you agreed to take the plea agreement, anticipating that you would get 10, and what was your reaction when the judge handed down a, a sentence of, a, of, of much longer than 10? Very disappointed. Uh, you know, my, my attorneys and family were very, very disappointed. No, I, I wouldn't say I was shocked, uh, because, of course, 14 years is far greater than 10, but, and yet when you're involved in these cases, as I soon became involved with in prison on a regular basis, what you find is the amount of years are, are given out by these judges like, you know, so, so freely and so comfortably by them that it's hardly surprising that uh, I did get the 14. And how old were you when, this, when the sentence came down? 47 years old. And you went into the prison system at 47 years old with a 14-year sentence. Where did you begin? I began at FCI Loretto in Pennsylvania, far from home. Uh, that's another question that's often asked of me. Why would they send you so far from home? But what you learn in this system is, as I'm sure you, would, you have found yourself, is that oftentimes it's just by chance that it's, it's wherever a bet is available. There isn't a lot of thought that goes into it. But I began at FCI Loretto, was there for a year and a half until I was camp eligible. And how long did it take you to transfer to the camp from a year after you were there? Did you go right after a year and a half? Uh, I immediately. Uh, that that actually worked out very well. I was processed very quickly. I had a very, very um, amenable case manager and counselor. That worked out very well. So you started inside of a low security prison in Laredo, is that right? Laredo, Pennsylvania. And what was the population level there? Was it more than a thousand people? 1,400 inmates. 
And how was your initial adjustment inside of a low security prison? Very, very good. And the reason why actually is because when the inmates found out that I was an attorney on the outside, I was very busy right away assisting inmates. And that, that happened within the first two weeks. So from, I would say, the two-week period onward for those the year and a half, I was literally busy eight to nine hours a day. What kind of practice did you have prior to going to the prison system? A civil litigation and bankruptcy practice, corporate bankruptcy, representing trustees in bankruptcy, and, and civil, uh, both state and federal litigation. I was a member of the Federal Trial Bar in the Northern District of Illinois for many years. And what was the learning curve to transition from civil litigation and corporate governance to uh, prosecuting uh, habeas corpus petitions, post-conviction litigation in prison? It was an adjustment, but surprisingly not significant or as significant as one might expect because the general guidelines for what litigators learn to become a civil litigator apply in the federal context and in the criminal context. So the transition was more or less just studying the federal criminal statutes. And that came fairly quickly because, again, I was so busy right off the bat that I was immersed in these statutes from the first few weeks. And uh, basically, many uh, what you what one learns when they do this kind of work is that much of the work, particularly as a jailhouse lawyer, and that's what we're called when we're doing the work within the prison, is done with a number of forms, and you're using these forms repeatedly. So it's something that became very comfortable for me. And you're talking about forms primarily 2255s and. Bivens actions and that kind of thing, or is there something else? And 2241s, yes. So why don't you help our audience understand the difference between a 2255 and a 2241? Generally speaking, a 2255 a habeas petition is used when one is um, contesting the validity of their sentence or conviction, the underlying case, if you will. On the other hand, or by contrast, a 2241 habeas petition is typically pursued by an inmate who has complaints about prison conditions. The most common, typically being in my experience, lack of me appropriate medical care. That was probably the, the single most common issue that I was dealing with in the 2241 context. Although now, as I've been filing of late, uh, in, in, in combination with compassionate release motions, which we could discuss in a minute, the 2241 petition also applies to this COVID issue at present. Why don't you help our audience understand or differentiate between a 2255 petition and a direct appeal? A direct appeal is... Uh, Perjury cases can be hard for the state to prove. Because in order for a state to successfully prosecute you for perjury, they must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the statement you made is false. And they must also prove that there was intent to lie. So if a person is doing their best to recall an event, and maybe their vantage point was such that they saw things differently, or their perspective on the event was different, 
uh, the state would have to prove that you intended to make a false statement in order to convict you of perjury.